0: Welcome to Precon Geeks, your home for all things pre-construction brought to you by Beck Technology. I'm your host, John Reich. Uh, want to let everyone know we're a little bit busy this week getting ready for our annual user conference, Precon World, uh, this Thursday and Friday. We wanted to make sure we got something out, but uh, weren't able to record a new episode, but we did want to re- uh, re- do a repeat of our interview with Stuart Carroll, uh, our CEO, Talking about the future of technology and pre construction and the pre construction data lifecycle. So, hope you guys enjoy this one. Uh, again, next week we're going to be back with a recap of Precon World and uh, talk about all the new technology topics we're talking about it there. And uh, again, if you guys have any topics or want to come on the podcast, please email us at PreconGeek at Beck technology.com. Or you can visit our website, www.becktechnology.com, and just let us know. We're more than happy to talk about any topics you have or have you on the podcast if you have the opportunity. But anyway, here's our interview with Stuart, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks, guys.
1: But I'm incredibly excited about this one because we are joined today by the president of Beck Technology, Stuart Carroll. Stuart, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm
2: great. Uh, always find it funny when I'm introduced as the president. I sound... Uh...
1: So prim and proper. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's an honor to have you, and we're excited to kind of talk through a little bit of history of who you are, a little bit of history of Beck Tech, um, and then really just kind of what Beck Tech is all about uh, and what we find is important as a company. Um, so, with that said, um, I've always been curious personally, and I haven't been with Beck Tech for very long, but I've always been curious. How did you get into construction?
2: So my grandfather was a carpenter. Um, he was in the military during the war and uh, after the D-Day landings actually followed the frontline troops, rebuilding the bridges that the Germans had bombed. Oh wow! And I remember growing up sitting on my grandfather's knee um, as a lot of little kids do hearing their grandparents tell them stories. And my grandfather's stories often were about the war and how he, his view was, he wasn't really, um, building bridges. He was rebuilding Europe. Mm. And, um, I always was excited about construction primarily from my grandfather's stories. Um, after the war, there was a lot of cities in, in England that had been completely leveled. Mm. And he always used to talk about, you know, there's a, there's a canvas and it wasn't building buildings. It was rebuilding societies mm. and, um, that was sort of my, my, my formative years. I, I, um, have a undergraduate degree and a graduate degree from the university of Iowa in computer science. So my original go to school was, was not to, to get into construction, but when I got done with school and I thought about where can I apply this construction definitely was at the top of my list. Yeah. How can I use this technology to help, you know, make make societies better. So that was sort of the connection, my grandfather and stories to computer science to, well, how do I make a living? Mm -hmm. And um, that was sort of how I ended up in construction.
1: So what was your first role within within a construction company? Well, when I was in grad school, I got into
2: um, simulation. So I first started in grad school working on something called the National Advanced Driving Simulator. And it was about how do you use computers to simulate the the real world? Um, My first job after grad school was for a company that was doing building simulation. Mm So 3d modeling of of buildings, think of Revit, but maybe 10 years earlier in the UK. Um, And it was exciting to me that you could, make mistakes as a, as a planner Mm -hmm. on a computer rather than actually as you know, as you're building or, you know, post occupancy regretting the mistakes that have been made. So, um, that's sort of how I got into this, why I thought it was important. Um, the ability to simulate, you know, what's going to be and try and come up with better solutions. I was Mm -hmm. also one of those kids growing up that used to drive, I went to Catholic school, drove the nuns nuts. I was always asking the why questions. Yeah. And part of my my nature is, well, why can't we make it better? Mm. You know, why 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 is that the way it has to be? Yeah. And I, I kind of always looked at simulation as a way of testing the proposed plan, mm. and then collectively coming up with ways to make it better. Yeah. Um, you know, why is, does it have to be that way? Why is the structure metal instead of concrete? Why
1: is the HVAC system one mm. way another? It sounds like, and I know I didn't come at construction from a technology perspective, but it sounds like early on technology and construction kind of went hand in hand for you.
2: Well, it was, I'm a tech geek. I I love technology. It was what what I loved doing as a kid. I was the introverted kid who used to find his home playing with technology. it was my way, I think, of connecting two things in my life that I was super passionate about, the thing that my grandfather had kind of put in my formative years with what I was interested in. Yeah. And out of that came, well, this is the way that you can make the built environment better.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So fast forward, um, however many years, and I don't know that, um, Hundreds. you, <laughs> you were at uh, the BET Group, and this is how Beck Tech started, if I'm understanding that correctly. And if you just walk us through a little bit of how yeah. Beck technology started. Well, I'm going to go back a little, little
2: further even than that. So yeah. I actually met Peter Beck um, when I was working for a startup in the UK. So after, after college, I went back to the UK and worked for a startup called the Building Modeling Company. Okay. They had a product called Reflex and Reflex was, in essence, a, a 3D modeling tool ahead of its time, ahead of Revit and other kind of 3D modeling tools. Peter um, I bumped into it in our office in the UK mm-hmm. and he was introduced to me as an American uh, owner of a construction company. I remember I always thought uh, in my memory he had a cowboy hat, but he didn't, <laughs> but he definitely had cowboy boots. Um, and was introduced to me as a, as a, a, an owner of a construction company that was looking for a better way of, of building buildings. Yeah. So that was about 94, 95, Um, and in Peter's mind, it was we take on so much risk as Mm. construction companies. We inherit designs. We inherit decisions from owners around budgets and schedules. And when we come to the table as construction companies, we are often handicapped. We're often handcuffed in what we can and we can't do. Mm. We got good people with good culture, with good intentions, but because those decisions have been made, we can't necessarily make the best decisions to give you the best outcome. Yeah. So Peter's um, goal was, well, how how does my company, the VET group, get involved a lot earlier? And in his mind, it's initially, well, how do we get involved in the design phase? Um, They tried some partnerships with with architecture companies, tried design build, and it's better. Don't get me wrong, it's better than just getting brought to the table late and and building it. Yeah. But I think his epiphany was there's decisions that are made even before the designer, they're made by the developer, they're made by the bank, they're made by the owner, that if we could get involved right at the very project inception, And we could bring what's the cost, what's the schedule to the decision making Mm -hmm. and have this this set of tools that would enable us to make rapid decisions. Yeah, we could try every permutation and come up with the best project. And then we could build the best project with the best outcome. So um, Peter was looking around the world for, well, if we had the people to do that, how do we enable them with tools? Mm so i got first introduced to peter looking for technology but when i later uh found out really his his big goal was to revolutionize construction by bringing decision making um a lot earlier and bringing the right people to the table i got really excited because it wasn't it was no longer develop technology and find a you know field of dreams build it right it was he really understood that if we can get the right people to the table at the right point in the delivery process with the right tools to give insight, we can revolutionize construction. Yeah. Um, so I learned about Peter's vision in 96. I joined back in 2000. Um, in between there, there was an acquisition by another software company where I moved from the UK to Boston, Mm -hmm. continue to work on the tool. Mm -hmm. Um, about 2000 Peter came back into the equation and said, we'd like to buy the technology from, from the technology company. And I, myself and two others moved from Boston down to, to Dallas to work directly for Peter Beck.
1: Okay. Totally off subject. And I'm going to just throw a a curveball in here. What was it like when you first moved over to the U S
2: well, I came over for college (laughs) and, uh, it was like my world had been turned upside down yeah. di- divided by a common language yeah there's so many stories where i would say things and people look at me and they go what did he just say and there's so many where i was like you do what yeah you put butter on, on, on popcorn? popcorn that's yeah. like cardboard why, why would you put butter on cardboard and, and love it I, I just don't get it so yeah, it was, it was, my world was turned upside down. I, love
1: it. I grew up in uh, South America, most of my childhood. And so when I moved back to America, it was in 98, uh, it was a culture shock for sure. Oh yeah. Uh, I don't know if it would be as much coming from England to, to well, but- show my age.
2: I mean, it was pre-internet, so I would speak <laughs> to my parents once a month yeah. and it was limited to 10 minutes because yeah. it was one pound, which was like $2 per minute. Mm-hmm. So it was like 20 bucks for a 10 minute call. Yeah. And um, you know, there was no like send an email, there no mm-hmm. FaceTime, there was none of that. It was um write a letter. And my mother's kept my letters. Um, where do you buy washing powder? And um, you know, I was known as the guy in pink yeah. in my uh in my
1: in my team because I didn't know how to wash, so I mixed all the colors together. Yeah. I don't- so, yeah, we all
0: everyone makes that mistake in college. That's, I don't yeah. think kids
1: know how to do wash. No. that's a whole other topic. Is yeah, so it was culture shock and then just learning what the real world's about. It was it was definitely different. Yeah. John, I know you and I talked offline uh, when we found out that Stuart was going to be able to do an interview with us and we talked about kind of Beck Tech's mission statement, um, kind of our vision, and you really had some good
0: insight, but then also some good questions that you wanted to ask Stuart for that. Sure. So you know, the mission statement that Beck Tech has revolutionized the industry, change the future. So I'm assuming that came from those initial conversations with Peter and he helped craft that vision. How do you feel Beck technology is holding up that vision and that mission statement as a company?
2: Yeah. So it's revolutionize the industry, create the future and go, go back to 96. Um, Ninety-four, ninety-six. It, it was very much a hard bid kind of world that construction was in. Contractors were brought to the table. Really once there was a stack of drawings that had been fully engineered, fully designed, give us a price, now build it. And um, as I said, Peter had this different view and his view really came out of his own personal experience. There's a project up in Philadelphia, that unfortunately a person lost their life on a job Mm. and, um, it ended up in, in court and, you know, unfortunately a person died. You, you never get that person back, but fortunately for the Beck group, um, they lived to fight another day. They were not responsible for the the individual's death. But I think out of that was a big step back, which is if, if people are making decisions that put our people's lives at risk, there's a problem. Mm -hmm. And um, the only way that you can do that is be involved in the decisions and try to give insight. And, you know, the insight is often its cost, its schedule, its safety. Um, But out of that comes this opportunity, which is if we can give you insight into all three of those, and you can rapidly make decisions to study different alternates, instead of just it's it's this now go build it, it's the best version of this. And so um, Peter's view was, if we get in designers and contractors involved very early, not only can we build it, we can come up with the best version of it and the best version being whatever criteria the owner wants. And his, his view was that instead of being paid as a commodity, build it, be paid for the value that we bring, which is to really make the world a better place for everybody to live by building better buildings. and so that was really the the impetus to um, revolutionizing the industry and creating the future is it's a whole different way of thinking and um, that's what inspired me it sort of goes back to my grandfather it's a blank sheet it's a canvas don't just build it build the best version of whatever it can be build the best data center build the best warehouse the best office the best school um based on whatever criteria defines best
0: So i'd like to jump on that real quick so when you say the best so again it's not just the cheapest the fastest the award-winning it could be any combination of those it's just providing the the decision points to make those decisions for every party to be able to be benefit from
2: yeah i I think i think the world that we're in in construction we we look at it as faster cheaper better and i i I think better is the one where to me, it's like beauties in the eye of the beholder, but it's, it's looking at buildings differently. It's not building a building and valuing the building on it. It was cheaper. It was delivered faster. It's what's the impact on that building on society at large. If you're going to build a hospital and the purpose of a hospital is to save lives, how can we put more beds in a hospital to mm-hmm. save more lives? If it's a school and the purpose of a school is to educate you know, our, our kids and create the, the next generation better than our own generation, how do we help them retain information? How do we put daylight in, which has statistically been proven to help retention of information or whatever design element helps with a better outcome? It's, it's, it's really thinking about the outcome as opposed to construction, how much does it cost or how quick does it take to build?
1: Yeah, I love that. And I want to actually jump back on something you said, because I came out of one of the one of my jobs was a safety director for many years. And we talked about this, John, on one of our first episodes was how pre-construction a lot of times obviously is focused on the estimator or or all of that. But there's such a piece to pre-construction that's. I mean, it encompasses everything and it's safety is a big deal, a big deal or a big part of that. Should and um, yeah, should be correct. Yeah, should be. And I noticed in my history or my, in my past companies that it wasn't always. Uh, and so then you're, you're kind of caught with your pants down. If, if I can say later on in the project thinking, Oh, we didn't budget for this or we didn't think about this. And so I'm excited. I know in a, in a later prod in a later uh, episode, we're going to, we're going to specifically talk about safety within pre-construction. So uh, I'm excited about that. But um, one of the things that, that, um i've heard you talk about i actually talk about it too when i'm when i'm speaking to other people is uh pre-construction data data life cycle i can never get that word right pre-construction data life cycle um i've been told you coined that phrase um i don't know if that's true or not there's there's
2: some truth to that okay um like
1: like most things it's a team sport
0: yeah
2: yeah
1: I just need to know who you give credit to when I talk about it. <laughs> uh, our marketing team. That's, that's I love think. it. I love it. So when our listeners hear pre-construction data lifecycle what do they think what 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 should they think? What are we what are we trying to translate that into in the way we work? Well, let, let, let me take one big step back
2: and I promise I'll answer it directly. So I think as an industry, you, you sort of touched on this a little bit, you know, we, we don't necessarily focus on the things that we all believe we should focus on. And it's not that we are bad people uh, making bad decisions. It's that we don't have a lot of time and the tools and processes that we follow are not optimal. And as a result, we focus on what I'm going to call low value activities. Mm -hmm. We spend a lot of time counting things and measuring things and formatting things. All really, really, really important activities. Yeah. But as a result of spending time on those activities, we don't spend a lot of time analyzing and proactively problem solving. Mm -hmm. It's usually here's a set of plans or an idea for a project. What does it cost? Mm -hmm. How long is it going to take? Um, And what I see is an opportunity, which is if we can start to automate some of those low value activities, or in some cases even eliminate some of those activities, the time savings will give us an opportunity to focus on higher value activities. When I think about PDL, pre-construction data lifecycle, it's really data to support high value activities. It's the ability to capture all of the data that goes into um, a construction project from inception all the way through to um, occupancy.
1: Yeah,
2: it can be, you know, what were the options that we studied at the very beginning that we threw away? The throwaways have value, yeah. yet we don't do anything with it today. They sort of just, you know, disappear. Nobody remembers what we did. Yeah. Um, we tend to be deliverable centric as an industry, focused on the next version of the estimate. Mm. And we're less less um, concerned or less, um, I don't know, detailed about capturing well, what went into that deliverable. Yeah. So to me, PDL is this: let's let's acknowledge this value in what went into each of the deliverables, or what went into the decision making, and let's capture it. So it's unit prices, it's quantities, it's value engineering options, it's which estimator did what and when. Um, it's everything that we do during pre-construction, capture it. There's, there's value in data seamlessly hand it off to construction, whatever the final budget was, um, at the end of the project, being able to bring back quantities and costs yeah. and for every iteration of the project have data. And then I think it's using that data to tee up benchmarking capabilities or patterns Mm -hmm. Um, back to sort of my computer science background there's there's value in in big data sets and looking for patterns. what are the things that you typically study if it's 10 15 20 value engineering options why can't the computer help the estimator these are the 10 or 20 that you should start with yeah um using your historical data. Historically, when we've studied those options, here's what the patterns that we've seen, the range of prices, the range of, you know, materials that you use. So for me, PDL is capturing data throughout the life of the project, and then using it to look for patterns and, and automation opportunities to help pre-con teams on the next project, get a,
1: a jump start. What do you, I mean, what do you think construction has been around for a long time? Pre-construction has been around for a long time. Why do you think we're, we're just having, I don't want to say we're just having this conversation now, you've been having this conversation for a while, but why don't you think construction has, has, um, invested into, into this type of thing before?
2: Well, I I think, I think it's always hard, right? I mean, it's, it's timing, it's opportunity and it's choices, Um, I think we're in a a unique time where other industries are ahead of us. Um, but we have an opportunity in our industry to take advantage of what has been out there. Um, our industry is, is a very low margin, high risk uh, industry, we don't often have opportunities to be on the the leading edge. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the technologies are now proven in other industries. And I think that the timing is right for construction. Yeah. 10 years ago, I don't think technology was where it was. Um, I don't think the expectations of the customer are where they're at
1: Mm -hmm.
2: our customers, um, or construction companies, customers, their expectations is we're in a Google world. Yeah. I type it in and I, I want to know. Immediate. I, 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 want, I want immediacy. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, with the, the sort of the, the downturn in 2009, the Bear Stearns, I think people expect transparency. They, they, they want to know not just it costs $100 million, but I want to see where that $100 million is. Yeah. So I think you, you couple technology with owner expectations about real time and transparency. I feel like now is mm. the time. And then um, while I see a lot of construction companies moving away from hard bid, it's still there. Mm-hmm. It's, it might not be hard bid in the 1970s sense, yeah. you know, sealed bidding, although there's still some of that, but there's still contractors getting involved late in the game. Mm-hmm. And I think you're also starting to see more and more contractors recognizing if they get involved earlier, they can bring more value.
0: Right.
2: So I just, I just look at it as this, it's this, Confluence of timing, opportunity, and then contractors making choices. Yeah, that um, it's now. Yeah.
0: So I have one follow up to that. Yeah. Uh, the hard bid market has been there forever. I do think it is diminishing or yes. or getting a little bit smaller in terms of percentage of the overall market. But how do we overcome that mindset of I'm going to wait until the last second and give people the least amount of information to make high value, high risk decisions off of. Um, do you feel that the the industry as a whole is changing from that, from, I'm going to give the least amount of information possible to let's give more than enough information, let's give all the relevant information and not trap people in mistakes, but enable them to make something collectively. That's a little bit better. I do believe
2: that. I, I, I think if you look at um, collaborative forms of delivery, they are becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, design build, I know IPD um, as it's defined by you know AIA is probably not the, the, the predominant form of construction delivery, but I think it's hard to argue that CM at risk design build is becoming a bigger and bigger, bigger portion. And I think contractors are doing a much better job at, at, you know, communicating the value of collaboration. And I think you're seeing more and more owners recognizing that it's not, it's not the bid amount that really is the final amount It's it's after you get change ordered. And I think what you see with collaborative forms of delivery is yes, the initial number may be higher but I think what you're finding is there's less variability from that high number. And I think that's what a lot of owners want. They want, they want uh, a number they can go to the bank with and rely on and know that they're they're getting a certain quality building for that certain dollar amount.
0: Cost certainty. Cost instead. certainty, yeah.
1: exactly. Well, we could, I think, keep having this conversation forever. This is by far the longest um, podcast we've, we've done so far. So, with that in mind, I only have one final question is kind of putting you on the spot, but if you think through the people that are listening to pre-construction podcasts, right? You have estimators, senior pre-con managers, maybe directors of pre-construction, VPs, etc. Um, what's just something that, that, that you can, I guess, what would you say to them as we think about the future of pre-construction? Um, and, you know, what's important to us as Beck Tech, but I mean, kind of taking Beck Tech out of the picture, but just in pre-construction in general? Yeah, I, I, I mean, it, it, it blows my mind the number of kids that come out of
2: construction programs and their first role in a, in a job is, is a set of digital plans and here's some digital crayons, now go sketch. Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying is I think there are opportunities today to accelerate the careers of young construction men and women. Mm-hmm. I think there's a huge opportunity in the market to get the best talent, That leads to winning the most work that leads to the highest retention rate and I think there's a huge competitive advantage for contractors today if you can rethink your pre-construction process think about bringing on young people and getting them up to speed in in a shorter period of time and I think if you are willing to take that leap of faith on there's a better way I think you'll benefit for it for the next 20, 30, 40 years.
1: That's, that's great. Very well said. Um, John, I think that's a good place to um, end the podcast. Do you have any other final thoughts?
0: No, I think it's been a good one.
1: Well, for all of you guys who listen, we really appreciate it. Um, if you do want to look up any further information, you can go to www.beck-technology.com.